Hi everybody, it's Scene on Radio. I'm John Bewin. If you're tuning in for the next Seeing White episode and thinking, wait, where's part 13? Is the season over? Don't worry, it's not. We've got a couple more Seeing White episodes still to come before we call it a season. But right now, we interrupt the series for this important story. A story that is certainly related to Seeing White. It's a dive into institutional racism in America. But we're not calling this episode part of the Seeing White series because it's more of a traditional investigation into alleged race discrimination, a story I've been working on separately for a year and a half. It's a collaboration with the excellent radio show and podcast Reveal from the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Some of you have heard the piece on Reveal. If you haven't, please stick around. If I ask you to picture an American farmer, what image floats to mind? Flannel shirt, overalls? Chances are the farmer you're picturing is white, and with good reason. More than nine out of 10 American farmers are white today. But of course, in the longer view of things, black people have played a huge role in American agriculture. The nation's economy was built largely on black farm labor, in bondage for hundreds of years, followed by a century of sharecropping and tenant farming. That plan at the end of the Civil War to grant the freed slaves 40 acres and a mule so they could be self-sufficient as farmers, that promise wasn't kept. Still, somehow, a century ago, African-American families owned 15 million acres, one-seventh of the nation's farmland. But then, through the 20th century, black farmers lost their land at a much faster rate than white farmers, and are now fewer than 1% of American farm families. For Eddie Wise, owning a farm was a lifelong dream. But for a black man born in North Carolina in the 1940s, it wasn't that easy. His father, grandfather, and great-grandfather were all sharecroppers. Eddie wanted very much to farm, just not under those conditions. When I turned 18, I signed up to go in the Army. I was out there working in the tobacco field, and the guy came looking for me two days in a row the guy being an army recruiter. And I raised both hands and said, here I come. <laughs> I said, the next time I'm on a farm, I'm gonna be owning that bad boy. I'm not working on a farm for nobody else. About 30 years later, after a military career, Eddie would get his own farm. But he and his wife Dorothy say that over a 25 year period, the U.S. Agriculture Department discriminated against them repeatedly because of their race and finally drove them off their land. So, um, what's the day today? Today is the, what? <laughs> I don't know. I think, I think it's the 20th. Oh. <laughs> uh -huh. Today is January 20th, Wednesday. January 20th, 2016, 8.40 a.m. I've just arrived at Eddie Wise's farm. It's a small 106-acre hog operation on rolling land near Rocky Mount, North Carolina. The driveway bends around a grove of trees leading to the mobile home where Eddie lives with his wife, Dorothy. I've driven out this morning because Eddie called and said something was about to go down. 
I've just turned on my recorder. We're talking when one of Eddie's dogs interrupts, announcing the arrival of the expected guests. Let's walk on up this way. And here they come around that curve. White SUVs and squad cars, seven vehicles in all. Officers spill out. I count 14 men and women, mostly U.S. Marshals with a few county deputies as backup. Some of the Marshals carry semi-automatic rifles. Come on down. Why are you doing this morning, sir? My dogs don't bite. Sir? I said, my dogs don't bite. A U.S. Marshal, the leader of the operation, approaches Eddie and presents the papers. Deputy Coney with the Marshal Service. You obviously know what's going on. Okay. I know you all. Come. Yes, sir. There's a, for, there's a foreclosure judgment that's been issued against you and a seizure ordinance. So we're going to have to remove you from your residence this morning, and there are certain items that are going to be taken. Okay. Well, wife. my wife is sick. Okay. Well, that, you're going to have to we'll work with you and give you a reasonable amount of time, but you are going to have to get your wife and, and vacate the premises this morning, sir. Okay. And there's items we're going to be seizing on your property. There's a full list in here, and this copy is for you. Eddie takes the document and studies it. He has a round face and a farmer's thick hands. He's still a formidable presence at 72 years old. What's wrong with your wife this morning? I mean, what, what is your wife suffering from? My wife is suffering from three and a half years of stress. I understand that. Eddie was told the marshals would be coming to seize his farm equipment because he hadn't made payments on his government loan. But he says he didn't know he and Dorothy would be evicted today. So I'm supposed to take my wife and just walk off. Yes, sir. Unfortunately, that's, that's the order from the court. Okay. Do you have any weapons in the house, sir? Of course I have weapons in the house. It's I'm just, on the farm. I, I understand that. It's just a question I have to ask. Yes. Okay. I'm a retired Green Beret. I understand that as well, sir. And yeah, I appreciate I... your service. <sighs> Can we walk in with you? Or let me walk up here with you. I just want to make sure that everything's fine. I'll let you get your wife. We're not going to interfere with you getting your wife by any means. Okay. But we do need to walk in there with you. In the past, when dealing with USDA officials, Eddie's been known to get angry and threaten violence. But this day, he's calm and polite. But until that time, we have to go forward, Mr. Wise. Yes, sir. I have a major problem. The armed marshals follow Eddie into his mobile home. After you, sir, your residence. Inside, the marshals secure Eddie's weapons. So the, the uh, rifle right there and the pistol right there, you got any more guns in the house? Yeah, I got a shotgun right behind the door. Right, can we get that one too? Eddie wakes Dorothy. She has diabetes and can't walk well. Once she's dressed, Eddie will have to help her to the car. An hour later, evicted from their farm and home of 20 years, they sit in their car in a church parking lot across the road. Eddie's in the front seat, Dorothy's in back. Brown sugar. Yeah. Mm, you're sounding okay. It's gonna be all right, babe. We're gonna just have to figure out where we're gonna stay and what we're gonna do. I asked Dorothy what she's thinking and feeling. I don't feel anything, because I'm just going along with what uh, Eddie was saying and what was happening to us. Yeah. I don't approve of it, but what can we do at this point? As we sit in the quiet of the car and talk, a truck pulling a stock trailer pulls out of the farm road, maybe 50 yards from us, and drives away, 
carrying away dozens of hogs. There goes the pigs. There goes the stock trail. That night, the couple would find a room at a low-cost motel. I met the Wises almost 10 years ago. I was working on a documentary about family farmers. I visited their place a bunch of times, recording as they went about their days and as Eddie worked with their small herd of 250 hogs. Eddie! Eddie! That's Dorothy in the farmyard. Where are you? Here in the burning house. Dorothy tells Eddie in a mock, scolding voice to live up to his last name. Be wise. Well, I think the most wise thing that I did was seeing this foxy lady walking down the hallway at Howard University and got to know her and later on made her my wife. The couple met in 1988 in Washington, D.C. The Army sent me to Howard University to teach. I was teaching the military science department, air mobile operations, repelling, jumping, air assaults. She was a grant manager for the College of Medicine. She said, the Spirit of the Lord told me that the man that come in my life would bring everything. She said, I've wanted a farm all my life. So I told her, I said, you're kidding me. He told me he was going to a farm. And I said, don't let this three-piece suit fool you. I'm on my way home to North Carolina to find a farm right now. I said, I'm going to Wilson, North Carolina to pick bluebirds this weekend. So I said, okay. She said, let me get my hat. So I got my hat, put it on, and we drove down there and picked bluebirds all day long. And, I mean, it's been a roll ever since this. And we've been married, what, 16 years now? (laughs) (laughs) So... Life, to me, can be very enjoyable if you have somebody with you that you constantly can communicate with and you enjoy them and they enjoy you. And you will help them no matter what you have to do. But in 2016, the U.S. government would take the Wise's farm and run them off. In a report 20 years ago, during the Clinton administration, the U.S. Agriculture Department called itself, quote, a contributing factor in the dramatic decline of black farmers. A landmark class action lawsuit filed by black farmers against the USDA, known as the Pigford case, named after a North Carolina farmer named Timothy Pigford, was settled in 1999. A court found the farmers had been systematically denied aid solely because they were black. Loans, grants, and subsidies that white farmers received. As a result, the government paid black farmers a total of more than $2 billion in one payout at the end of the 90s and another under President Obama in 2010. This isn't simply uh, a matter of making amends. It's about reaffirming our values on which this nation was founded principles of fairness and equality and opportunity. The question is, did the USDA fix the problem? Eddie and Dorothy Wise say government officials discriminated against them both before and after the black farmer settlement. 
Dorothy and Eddie Wise found the farm they wanted in North Carolina in 1991. Almost no one buys a farm without a loan, and certainly the Wises could not. That meant dealing with the U.S. Agriculture Department and its lending arm, then called the Farmers Home Administration, or FHA. The Goodable Net had an unwritten system. If you walked in the FHA and you were black, the first thing they did was close the books. And they said no to anything that you asked from that point on. They said it didn't have applications. If you got the application, they wouldn't tell you how to fill it out. And then when you finally got it filled out and turned into them, then they hit you, oops, we're out of money. The Wises say all those things and more happened to them. The loan officer in their county office stonewalled them at every turn, they say, from the time they walked into his office in 1991 until their loan was finally approved in 1996. The loan officer, Sidney Long, is now retired. I reached him on the phone. I'm not interested in talking about that at all, he told me. Do that and it comes back to bite you. The USDA in Washington declined to answer questions about the Wise's case because Dorothy and Eddie have a lawsuit pending against the department. But there's someone else who was in a position to know about the Wise's relationship with the USDA. Carl Bond lives on his family's 140-acre farm on the edge of Windsor, North Carolina. My father's operation is up the main road where they used to live, both my mom and my dad and dad is deceased. Bond retired in 2011 after a 32-year career with the USDA in North Carolina. Back in the 1990s, when the Wises were struggling to get their application processed, Eddie heard about Bond and reached out to him. He was the only African-American loan officer in the state. Uh, He came to my office. He said, uh, would you assist me with this application? I said, well, yes. I said, but didn't you ask the loan officer that you got it from, he said, yes, we asked him. He said, you know, we, you are a retired officer from the United States Army. Y'all should be able to do it. Is that a normal thing for a loan officer to say, to decline to help a farmer looking for a loan? No, we was required, and still is required, that if a farmer need assistance to help them fill out the forms, Bond says he'd heard plenty about Sidney Long, the wisest white loan officer, from the black farmers he talked to. Sidney came from the good old boys. Back in the day, white loan officers would loan money to people they know that said, we need some money. And then when we as blacks went in to ask, they would say, well, all the money is gone. I wondered, was Sidney Long just being ungenerous in refusing to help the Wises with their loan application, or was he violating regulations? I called this guy. My name is Stephen Carpenter. I'm a lawyer at Farmers Legal Action Group, uh, a nonprofit uh, law firm in Minnesota that works on behalf of family farmers. Carpenter says the requirement Carl Bond referred to, that loan officers help applicants with their forms, is based in law passed by Congress. Carpenter reads from an agency handbook from the time we're talking about. USDA officials should provide information about all services to all people who ask, that they are to explain all types of programs, 
And perhaps most importantly, uh, in the middle 90s, their own regulation says that USDA officials will give whatever assistance as necessary to complete the application. So the Wises filled out the form with help from Carl Bond. But now their loan officer, Sidney Long, told them their credit was poor. The Wises appealed to the National USDA office and won. By this time, the FHA had become the FSA, the Farm Service Agency. The Wises told the state director, an appointee of the Clinton administration, about what was happening with Sidney Long. The state director intervened and approved the Wises' purchase of the land. It took us five years to get it. We prevailed. I told my wife, I said, when God is blessing you, man can't stop you. But the Wises' troubles with the USDA were far from over. They'd bought the land, but like most farmers, they also needed an operating loan to get up and running. The hog buildings on the farm needed work, new roofs and a kind of heavy-duty curtain on the sides to block the winter wind. Their $170,000 operating loan was approved in 1997. That money was supposed to be released within weeks. Counting on that, the Wises scheduled the building repairs for later in the spring. They put down money on dozens of breeding hogs and made plans to pick them up after their buildings were renovated. But Eddie says Sidney Long, the loan officer, delayed the release of the Wises' operating loan. He drugged the loan process out for seven damn months. Eddie had to call off the repairs, but he had already committed to picking up his hogs. So by the time we got ready to bring them home in September, over half of them was already pregnant. And I had nothing but an open building with nothing but concrete floors. There were no curtains. And I had got some rolls of plastic and, you know, tried to put up makeshift curtains that break the wind from blowing in there. Winter nights in North Carolina often dip below freezing. Newborn pig comes out at 90 degrees, and he hits a concrete floor, and you're talking about about four or five minutes before he's dead. I lost, I had a little over 400 pigs to freeze to death. For the Wises, the loss of almost their entire herd was catastrophic. It put them in a hole they never dug out of. Why the delay in releasing their operating loan? They say Sidney Long told them there was no money in the loan fund. Carl Bond, the African-American loan officer who'd helped the Wises fill out their application, finds that puzzling. Their loan would have felt under the social disadvantage uh, loan fund, so... That's a fund for certain kinds of farmers, including African-Americans and women. There was plenty of social disadvantage money available at that time. All the loans I have for my... uh, Social disadvantaged customer went in and got funded. I requested internal USDA documents on the Socially Disadvantaged Farmer Fund through the Freedom of Information Act. The documents back up Carl Bond's memory. In 1997, the year the Wises applied, the fund ended the year with more than $200 million unspent. By 1998, the Wises had secured their farm and they eventually got their hog sheds improved, but they had almost no hogs. Now they had to try building a herd again from scratch and make their loan payments. Eddie says he went and complained to the FSA director about Sidney Long. So he said, uh, call Martin County and tell Carl Barnes I want him here and his supervisor. He said, by the way, Ms. Wise, Carl Barnes is black. I said, good. 
<laughs> so Carl came. That's how Carl Bond came to take over as the Wise's loan officer, even though Bond was assigned to other counties and his office was 50 miles away. It was an extraordinary move by the FSA. Carl Bond sums up the situation that Eddie found himself in after most of his hogs froze to death in the winter of 1997-98. He was behind the eight ball, and it got worse and worse as, as the time went on. Uh, so that's why they moved him to me, and I had to then service the loan. Bond extended the terms on the Wise's loan and allowed them to make small payments on their interest, payments they could manage while they gradually built back their herd. This kept them on the farm for more than a decade. It's a cold, sunny day. It's a pretty day, though. When I visited the Wises in the winter of 2009, Eddie was about to take a truckload of hogs to slaughter. Once they're slaughtered, they'll be processed into pork chop sausage, ribs, neck bone, pigtails, pig ears, all the goodies, all the above. When I look at a pig, I see potential dollars. When I smell pig poop, that's money. It's a business. But the hog operation wasn't bringing in a lot of money. My income right now is between the wife and I, $55,000 a year, non-farm income. That income came from Eddie's army pension, Dorothy's retirement from Howard University, and their two Social Security checks. And a $55,000 a year non-farm income help us stay on the farm. Because <laughs> we're pulling down roughly about $15,000, $16,000 a year on the farm. You can't run a hog operation like that. It's tight. But the farm was alive. Eddie and Dorothy had the life they wanted as one of the few remaining black American farm families. Eddie dreamed that someday he'd pass the farm on to his son. In the farmyard, Eddie calls his three dogs. Yep. He's had them since they were puppies. That's right. Grew up time. They're across between St. Bernard and Labs. Runt was the smallest one. That's the solid brown one. Jed is the male. Spot is his sister. They're, they're sisters and brothers. Daddy. Come on, Jay. Come on, right. Eddie still had those dogs in 2016. The U.S. Marshals took them away, even though they were pets, not farm animals. The Marshals told the Wises they took the dogs to the pound, where they were given to three different families. You may be wondering, couldn't the Wises have benefited from Pigford, that class action legal settlement with the USDA? The answer is probably. 13,000 black families received one-time $50,000 payments from that settlement. But Eddie says the loan officer's obstructions cost his farm a lot more than that. We weren't gonna take $50,000, cause $50,000 wasn't no money. Another option under Pigford allowed farmers to sue for more money if they could prove discrimination more directly. But for that, the Wises would have had to hire a lawyer, 
and show that their local FSA office had treated white farmers better. How you gonna get the names of the seminal white farmers? They didn't know how. They tried suing on their own, but again they needed to prove that similarly situated white farmers were treated better. They couldn't, and the case was dismissed. The Wises moved on. I was just concentrating on trying to manage the farm. During the dozen years he managed their loan, Carl Bond helped the Wises refinance several times. This isn't unusual. Carl says a lot of farmers with FSA loans are unable to make their complete payments at times because of a bad growing season or low prices. The FSA usually works with those farmers. If they can make a good case, they'll be profitable the next year. Because they were just paying interest, the Wise's debt grew from the original $300,000 plus to more than $400,000 by 2010. But Eddie was gradually buying and breeding more hogs. Bond says there was reason for hope, and his bosses approved his approach. They reviewed everything that I did on the Wises. Uh, I would send it up to uh, to Raleigh, and they would go through it with a fine-tooth cone. And then they would say, these are some things we find. You get these things corrected, and then everything was good. But there were signs that higher-ups in the North Carolina FSA were taking a harder look at the Wises and their loan. Bond says one day in the fall of 2010, his boss, the district director, got a call from the state office in Raleigh asking to see the farm plan that Bond and the Wises were working on. After reviewing it, they came back and said, "Um, we don't think the number of hogs that we see on this balance sheet is correct. So that's when the state director said, okay, let's go and have a farm visit. Just to make this clear, Bond was a 30-year veteran loan officer and manager. For some reason, his superiors asked to examine a farm plan that wasn't completed yet. That was unusual. I think they wasn't trusting my say-so. They were trying to damage me. Remember, this is 2010, a decade after Pigford, the discrimination lawsuit that the government settled with black farmers. But even then, Bond says he often felt his work was questioned more than that of white officers. And that scrutiny was compounded in the case of Eddie Wise. You got a black loan officer assisting with a black farmer. They might think, hey, he's doing too much for this person. But at the end of the day, I was was doing everybody like that. I treat everybody the same. When Eddie Wise heard that the draft plan was being questioned, he was suspicious and angry. He'd studied the manuals. He knew a farm plan wasn't supposed to be passed up the chain of command for review until the farmer had signed off on it. He wanted to know what was going on. Then Carl Bond called again. He said, the state director wants to do a farm visit. I said, hell yeah, bring his white ass out here. I'm going to get some answers today. And so they roll up in the driveway and everybody piles out and Carl starts introducing them. I said, who in the hell carried my incomplete farm plan to the state office? So Carl Supervisor backed up. He said, ah, I did, Mr. Wise. I said, why? He said, because Mike Husky told me to bring it. Mike Husky was the farm loan chief for the whole state. Eddie and Carl believe Husky arranged this visit after looking at the farm plan. Why? In their draft, the Wises said they had 14 sows, breeding females. Remember, most of their herd froze to death in 1998, 
and the government hadn't loaned them any more money since then. So Eddie says a dozen years later, Mike Husky apparently didn't believe he could have that many sows. He sent Carl's supervisor to check, and the state director and Carl tagged along. So Carl said, Eddie, how many sows do you have? I said, I don't know, Carl. Let's count them. There's nine in here and 118 pigs. So we go to the second building, and there's nine more sows. I said, we're not through. We go to the first building, and here's 10 more sows. So now that's 28 sows. On my farm plan, I was only listing 14. Eddie'd had just 14 the last time Bond visited the farm, so that's the number he put down in the draft plan. Since then, Eddie had bought and raised 14 more. And so when the director saw those hogs, he started apologizing. He said, Mr. Wise, uh, I was told the wrong information. Jim Davenport, the district director, didn't return my phone calls. The state director at the time was Aaron Martin, an Obama appointee. He retired at the end of 2011. Martin tells me he remembers the visit to Eddie's place, but doesn't remember anyone questioning the accuracy of the farm plan. He had hogs there. We saw the hogs. But I do know my sense was that I thought Carl was doing a good job. He was following uh, the procedures like I wanted him to. We were not foreclosing on him any time. After the FSA officials found everything in order on the farm, Carl Bond turned in the Wise's plan for 2011. He completed my farm plan in uh, January and submitted it. State record signed off on everything, so everything was fine, we thought. A few months after Carl Bond's retirement, Eddie Wise called the Farm Service Agency to ask who his new loan officer would be. He was told Paula Nichols. Nichols has worked with the FSA since 1984. We're coming up on time to redo the farm plan. So I go in and tell her that I'm here to get assistance in doing my farm plan. So she looked at me and said, we don't do that anymore. Meaning we don't help you? Right. This reminded the Wises of the 1990s and their first loan officer who said no to them at every turn. Eddie did what he'd done back then. He went to see Carl Bond and asked for his help. Together, they structured the plan much as they'd done for many years. They put in production numbers that showed a slight positive cash flow. What happened next is revealed in a series of internal FSA documents. While I was working on this story over the past year, Eddie and Dorothy Wise requested their own file from the Farm Service Agency in North Carolina. The FSA made copies and gave the Wises a stack of paper several inches thick, including some documents they'd never seen. I met up with Eddie at Carl Bond's farm, and the three of us looked over the files. That in this, these, there were these two, two documents, right? These two e-dollars reports. Mm-hmm. Eddie and Carl were surprised to find a printout showing that the farm plan they submitted in the spring of 2012 was put through the FSA's loan-making computer program. It's called E-Dollars. Their loan was in Dorothy's name. Okay, they ran the E-Dollars on 524, and it says that certification and authorization. I hereby certify that Dorothy M. Wise does meet the requirement 
of the FSA regulation and is eligible for primary loan service and action. That is, the computer program approved the plan. But the Wises say their loan officer, Paula Nichols, never told them that. Instead, the same day that printout was done, the Wises had a meeting with Nichols at her office. She told them they were being denied loan servicing, the flexible terms they'd had with Bond that allowed them to pay what they could at the end of the year. Now Nichols told them they'd have to start paying $3,100 a month. That would have taken the bulk of their total income, making it impossible to feed their hogs and pay their other bills. They got up and left. I told my wife, I said, Brown Sugar, let's go. She said, what's wrong? I said, I'll tell you when I get outside. So when we got outside her office, I said, she's lying. She's violating the regulation. And I'm not going to argue with her because all I'm going to do is get pissed off and get arrested. Also in the file, there's another computer analysis. Okay, on this form was dated 6-7-2012. That's two weeks after the first printout and that meeting. The new report showed a different result. Now it says Dorothy NY does not meet the requirement of the FSA regulation and not eligible for primary surgery and action. So how did people in the FSA office get from an approved farm plan to one that got rejected? First, a little background. Bond explains that a hog producer's annual farm plan for an FSA loan amounts to a fairly simple calculation. This many sows will produce X number of piglets. They'll be fed and slaughtered and sold, bringing in this many dollars against the estimated expenses. You have to show your documentation of what you was doing, how you come up with those figures. The farmer's production history is key in deciding the numbers to plug in. The plan the Wises turned in said their sows would produce an average of 10 piglets. In fact, Bond says, Eddie had a track record of producing more than that, almost 12 pigs per sow. But they put down 10, the state average. Just so we could be on the safe side and wouldn't have to be questioned. The piece of paper we're looking at now may be the most telling of all. It's a photocopy of Bond's handwritten calculations that the Wises turned in with their farm plan. My calculation, he would produce 640 pigs, and we'd say give or take, he may lose 110 of them. So he would have 530 pigs to send to market. Bond points out that someone made additions on the page where he'd written that the Wise's sows would produce 10 piglets per litter. So handwritten under your 10... Is an 8. Is somebody's written... Yes. Lowering the number of pigs per litter from 10 to 8 cut Eddie's production by more than 100 piglets for the year, thus the shortfall in projected income. Stephen Carpenter of the Farmers Legal Action Group says lowering a farmer's production numbers is a violation of USDA rules. If somebody has historically had 12 and a half pigs per sow per year, that's what should be used in the cash flow. Carl Bond says Paula Nichols also violated procedures by simply replacing the Wise's version of their plan with her own and not sitting down with them to explain it. It's in procedures that once you make a change, it's okay to put it in the file, but you have to meet with the borrower to explain to you that, explain to the borrower that, okay, customer that, okay, I did my business plan and it's different from yours. This is what I did. This is what I saw. Can we come together to an agreement on on my plan or 
can we put together a medium that you'll be happy with and I can be happy with? But that never happened. Paula Nichols is now the FSA's farm loan chief for North Carolina. I reached her at her office in Raleigh. She said she couldn't comment because of the Wise's legal action against the agency. Carl Bond says it's very unlikely that Paula Nichols made the decision all by herself to get tougher on the Wises. He says any loan officer making such an important decision to put a farmer on the road to foreclosure would talk to the boss first. Evidently, it must have came from the state office, and at that time, the chief was um, Mike Husky. Mike Husky, the same man who Eddie Wise believes instigated that surprise farm visit a year and a half earlier to see if Eddie and Carl were telling the truth on their farm plan. Husky was Paula Nichols' direct supervisor at the time. Mike was just very strict about debt. That's Aaron Martin, the former FSA state director, and Mike Husky's boss until Martin retired at the end of 2011. Martin says he and Husky had different philosophies. Martin appreciated loan officers like Carl Bond, he says, who used their discretion to help the farmer whenever possible. He says Husky was less forgiving. And I think he felt like he was serving the government well in protecting the government's interest in here's this debt and it must be repaid. Martin says he doesn't believe Husky treated farmers differently based on their race. He was strict with everyone. But then Martin tells a story about a time when he found Husky's judgment especially troubling. It was around 2011, he says. A farm couple discovered that their FSA loan officer had failed to file documents at the county office for a conservation easement. It was the loan officer's responsibility, and his failure to follow through was going to cost the farm couple thousands of dollars. Mike told me that there was nothing anybody could do that if they wanted to contest it, they would have to uh, hire a lawyer. Well, I just was not having any of that. It was not their fault. It was the agency's fault. Martin says he overruled Husky, and the FSA covered the cost of its mistake. He says Husky would have left it to the farmers to solve the problem. I just couldn't believe it. Only after hearing the whole story, it occurred to me to ask, were those farmers white or black? They were minority uh, uh, farmers, African-Americans. Mike Husky retired at the beginning of 2017. I went to see him at his home on the rural outskirts of Raleigh. Hi. I'm so- is this Mr. Husky? Yes. I'm sorry to bother you at home, uh, but I couldn't find a phone number for you. Um, my name's John Bewin. I'm a reporter. And, um, I'm not talking to you. Through a closed glass door, he says, I'm not talking to you. I'm working on a story about Eddie and... What you're working on. Okay. I'm not talking to you. Husky says he knows what I'm working on. I would be remiss if I didn't give you a chance to respond. I can't talk to you about that case. Why, Why not? I can't. I can't, he said. In a brief written statement, the only response to our questions about the Wise case, the USDA said it restructured the Wise's debt four times between 1998 and 2010. That's during the time Carl Bond was managing the loan. The statement says the Wise's paid a total of only $8,000 over the life of their loan and owed $591,000 when their farm was seized. 
Some of that debt was interest that accrued after the Wises stopped making payments in 2011. When you're working with a farmer, when do you decide, when do you know, all right, it's time to... To quit? Yeah, to, to pull the plug. We can't, we can't continue to... Carl Bond concedes that by 2012, after he'd retired, it may have been reasonable for FSA officials to decide that Eddie and Dorothy Wise had run out of time. Normally, when I had a farmer that got to the end of his ropes, we worked out everything and we said, okay, this is the last time we can do a, a service and action on you. Uh, you're getting further and further in debt. What you want to do? You can go deeper in debt or you can cut your losses now and, and get out. I let the farmer make the decision themselves. Paula Nichols simply told the Wises they would have to start paying much more on their loan. They refused and defaulted. At that point, Bond says, the rules governing USDA loans say Nichols should have offered the Wises what's known as homestead protection. They were supposed to give him the opportunity to, to keep his house and have 10 acres of land around his house for his sake, which was to bring the pond in front of his land, about five acres uh, behind the house where he could have a garden at. But he would never offer that. And he, he's supposed to be offered that? Yeah, he's supposed to be offered that. Instead, the government took all the land in January 2016. If the USDA discriminated against the Wises, is it an isolated instance or part of a continuing problem? Not shockingly, it depends on who you ask. Okay, we're ready. Good morning. My name is Gary Grant, and I'm president of the Black Farmers and Agriculturalists Association. And in April 2016, Gary Grant held a press conference in front of the Farm Service Agency offices in Raleigh to call attention to the eviction of the Wises. Just a few reporters attended. Grant and other black farmer advocates say even though the USDA admitted widespread discrimination when it settled the Pigford lawsuit in 1999, it did not hold any employees accountable. I never have understood why people did not become outraged when the government settled with black farmers in 1999 and not one agent lost a job. Actually, they got promoted. Not one federal employee. We asked the USDA if anyone was ever fired after the findings in the Pigford settlement. They didn't answer that question or any other that we put to them. So I went to the guy who was at the top during much of this time. I set up an interview with Tom Vilsack, Secretary of Agriculture during President Obama's two terms. He said he didn't know about the Wise case and couldn't comment on it directly. But he says if Paula Nichols or someone else in the FSA office manipulated Eddie Wise's production numbers, that's a violation of agency rules. If there was no justification and no reason to change the number from 10 to 8, uh, that certainly is uh, uh, you know, something that sounds unusual and certainly just something that wouldn't, in my, my view, wouldn't pass the smell test if that's in fact what happened. Filsack told me because of the department's history of discrimination, he ordered training at county offices and tightened procedures, making sure farmers who came in asking for services were given a receipt so they could prove they'd asked for help when filing complaints. 
And Vilsack received a monthly report from the department's Office of Civil Rights. And what I can tell you is that um, we saw a substantial reduction in the number of program complaints. These would be people coming in and saying that they weren't being treated fairly. So uh, we did see progress. Uh, That is not to say that there can't be a circumstance or situation where, uh, for whatever reason, uh, something goes, you know, goes awry because you're dealing with 90,000 employees, 90 to 100,000 employees. Hello, Mr. Wise. Eddie's son is also named Edward Wise, but the family calls him Ronnie. I went to see him at his home in a quiet, semi-rural part of Prince George's County, Maryland. Ronnie is a career police officer in Washington, D.C. He's powerfully built like his father and shares his dad's love of growing things. The garden is, is, behind, is behind the shed, and then what I have in pots, I have in front. But the raised beds we do back, back behind, behind the shed. Being back here is like being back as close to North Carolina as I could get without being in North Carolina. Ronnie recently turned 50, an age that would have allowed him to retire with full benefits. My goal was at 50 this year was to start heading back back home to assist my father with the uh, farm. Because he uh, always talked about being able to pass down something because his parents never gave him anything. There was nothing to pass to pass on. And this was my, my heart's desire. Like I said, I've been trying to get back to North Carolina. And it looks like I'm not going back this year either. Because at this point, there's nothing to go back to. That was the whole thrust of my life. Uh, that's what I worked for the past my on my son. That was a done deal, you know. But I can't pass something on to him that the government's taken. It's kind of hard to do. Hard to even think about. Eddie is now at his sister's house in Williamston, the little town he grew up in in eastern North Carolina. The Wises didn't want to impose on family after getting evicted, so they stayed in that little motel for eight months, until finally Eddie's relatives insisted. My sister and my brother in September evicted me from the hotel I was in. (laughs) Eddie and I go to see Dorothy. Welcome to the Bryan Center. She's at a rehab center in the nearby town of Windsor. Last fall, her diabetes got worse, and doctors had to amputate both of her legs above the knees. Yo, little girl. Yeah. Are you sleeping in again? Dorothy's lying on her bed. Her eyes stay closed most of the time, but she does respond to Eddie. He visits almost every day, and brings oatmeal raisin cookies and a special drink for diabetics. You haven't had anything? Mm-mm. So you want me to kick it off with a cookie? Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, it's been a lot that has gone on with us. A lot has happened to us. We surveyed the situation and put things in place to create some happiness for us. And my thing is, if I ain't doing something to make her happy, then my, my day is not complete. If I miss a day or so and show up, 
She said, Eddie, I'm so glad you're here. She grabbed me by the hand. I said, I'm here, baby. When she hear my voice, she know it's me. That makes my day. Want a sip? You want it? Yeah. Okay. Coming at you. Given the history of black people on America's farms and plantations, building the country's wealth for little or no reward, isn't there a special, cruel irony if a branch of the U.S. government is seemingly going out of its way to drive one more black family off the land? Big thanks to Reveal for this collaboration. Credits for the episode in a minute. First, a preview. Next time here on Scene on Radio, Seeing White, Part 13. A fresh look at the history of public assistance and affirmative action. Not since the 1960s or 70s, but since the 1600s. Centuries of access and handouts, often reserved for one group of people for one reason. Not merit, not hard work, not meeting the criteria, just being white, the color of your skin. You have access to a loan, you have access to a neighborhood. You can live in this neighborhood if you're white. So was this country built on affirmative action for white people? That's next time. This episode, Losing Ground, was a collaboration between Scene on Radio and Reveal. It was reported and produced by me, John Bewin, and edited by Reveal's Deb George. The 2009 documentary project that first introduced me to the Wises was Five Farms, from the Center for Documentary Studies and a bunch of public radio stations, Mr. Wesley Horner, executive producer. You can still find that project online at fivefarms.org. That's F-I-V-E farms.org. Go to our website, seenonradio.org, to see photos of Eddie and Dorothy Wise. Reveal's sound design team is Jim Briggs and Claire Mullen, help from Catherine Ray Mondo. Original music and mixing on this show by Ramteen Arablui. Additional music by James Boudreau. Reveal's executive producer is Kevin Sullivan. Reveal with host Al Letson is a co-production of the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX. Follow us on Twitter at Scene on Radio, like our Facebook page. Scene on Radio comes to you from the Center for Documentary Studies at Duke University.